Hey, we are in week three of our series. We're all freaking out uh, and why we don't need to. And we just wanted to pause before we got in too far into the year and uh, kind of reset a little bit after a wild two years uh, in the pandemic world that we have all uh, come to live in and feel as a little bit normal. But um, perhaps some of the emotions we've been feeling around these last two years shouldn't be um, something that follows us into the next year. And so we wanted to talk about that. And so week one, uh, David did a great job, talked to us about worry. Uh, we kicked off that kind conversation. And then uh, week two, we talked about depression uh, and how we deal with process through a loss, grief, heaviness, and kind of what the Word of God would have us say to those. So if you missed either of them, I'd encourage you to hop uh, online or through our app and you can listen to both of those. But this week we're talking about fear. Um, and fear is a little bit of a weird one to talk about because it kind of is both the root of uh, the previous two and the symptom of the other one. And so here, here's what I mean. Sometimes your fear is what causes depression. But sometimes your worry is what causes your fear. Uh, and there's really a hard, like, it's hard to separate them because they are often so intertwined and, and mixed together. And so while we're talking about them separately, um, they really are so closely connected. So if you hear me say some things that I've said the last couple of weeks, it's good. We're just going to reinforce some of that. But um, I want to have a little fun because this has been a little bit of a heavier series. And so we're going to play a little game this morning of a little would you rather just to kind of lighten the mood for us. So I'm going to throw a picture on the screen and you're going to tell me uh, which one of these would you rather. So would you rather wake up to... Uh, the one on the right or the left in your bedroom. <laughs> and you're like, I live in the Northeast, so I don't have to wake up with either of them. Okay? All right. Snakes or spiders. All right. All right. Would you rather uh, have to go on top of a building or spend some time in a cave? All right. Now, this one, like, I was trying to find claustrophobic pictures, and I was having a hard time even looking at them. Like, I don't know if anybody else was traumatized as a kid. You were put in the back seat, and then your feet were there, and then your parents decided to pile all the groceries in next to your legs so you couldn't move, and you spent the whole ride from the grocery store, like, trying to not freak out, right? Like, it just, ugh, it gets me, all right? All right, would you rather go swimming with a shark below you and not know it, or find the little kitty cat coming at you while you're hiking down the road? All right, here's, a, here's one for my introverts, extroverts. Would you rather spend a day in this crowd or a day in the room of isolation? <laughs> now, all of you with young children are like, I will pay you if you put me in that room and take care of my children, all right? <laughs> Actually, interestingly enough, everybody thinks that, but there was a study done out, uh, out west, I think it's Colorado, and there's this room of absolute silence uh, where you can't hear anything outside. It's totally blocked off. It's so quiet, you can actually hear your organs um, working, and everybody's like, oh, I can stay in there forever. The longest anybody has ever stayed in there was 45 minutes. They started hallucinating at 30, all right? Just saying, pick wisely, all right? <laughs> All right, here's the last one. Would you rather spend a day with this guy or a day at a family reunion where you all have to match? <laughs> I'm sure you'd take the family reunion, but there's probably some clowns there too you got to watch out for. So see, see, the funny thing about fear is what you might freak out about would, would not bother somebody at all. And what might bother you might not bother them at all. Like some of you would rather cut your arm off than snuggle next to a snake and yet there's some people who have Satan incarnate inside of their house in, in a glass box, right? Like it's just, it's one of those things that is so subjective to who we are and the things that we're dealing with. But regardless of who you are and where you've come from, though these fears can be kind of funny and laughable, there's some really deep fears inside of every human. There's some deep things that we, uh, whether we will put these words to them or whether we'll call it something else, some fears that we really deal with. And so I want to talk through a couple of them. The first one is the fear of failure. 
Um, probably more devastating than the fear of clowns, depending on how badly you hate clowns. Um, but the fear of failure really is a fear of measuring up. It, it's a fear that my performance, my output, whatever I do at work, whatever kind of parent I am, it's just not enough. And so it's kind of this gnawing thing in the back of your mind that whenever you're doing something, it feels like you're just waiting for somebody to find out that you're a fraud. It's every time the boss calls you into his office, you're just waiting to get yelled at for the thing that you're pretty sure you did wrong, right? It's every time the phone rings and somebody says, hey, we need to talk, that you start running through all of the things that it probably is um, that you're failing at. It's why we're so insecure on parenting sometimes, because we don't want people to know that we don't have it all together, right? There's some deep-seated fears in us. The next one is a fear of rejection. This has less to do with our performance and more to do with our personality and our person not being enough. It's our fear that somebody's going to find out how weird we actually are. It's the reason some people don't talk at the party because they don't want people to find out about their weird rubber duck collection, right? Like it's, it's the, oh no, if somebody knew who I really was, they would never. If you have a rubber duck collection, I'm sorry. I tried to find the most random thing ever. If you have one, come talk to me. All right, anyway, <laughs> I will not reject you, I promise. But it is. It's just that if somebody finds out who I really am, they won't love and accept me. And so it causes us to put facades on. It causes us to pretend. It causes us to be and do all sorts of things that aren't true to who we are. The third one is the fear of loss. This is just that gnawing when the phone rings that maybe now is the time where you finally got that phone call you've dreaded. It's the fear that... um, this is why I didn't get a relate in a relationship in the first place because I didn't want to lose love because that hurts so bad. It's what keeps parents of teenagers up all night when they don't get the phone call of why they're not home in time. It's the gnawing during the entire pregnancy because you just don't know what to do and you feel uh, helpless. Right? Like these fears are legitimate. And then the, the other one, and this isn't an exhaustive list. This is kind of the four big ones. It's just the fear of the unknown. Um, just not knowing the uncertainty, what is tomorrow going to hold? Are we going to have enough money? Are the bills going to be paid? What's the economy going to look like? like? There's just all of these things, and this one in particular is incredibly paralyzing for us. I just don't know, so I'm just not going to do anything. I don't know what it is for you, and maybe there's a different one for you, and maybe you're denying that one of these is true, or maybe you're putting different words on it, but every human, admittedly or not, struggles with some level of of fear. And the word of God has a lot to say about it. We're going to look at a story today about a man who had to face um, pretty much every single one of these uh, as he had to listen and obey God. And it's in uh, Judges chapter 6 and 7. But before we, we get there, you can go ahead and turn there while I'm explaining. What's happening in Judges 6 and 7 is God is telling a man that he needs to go do something in obedience to him. But there's a whole lot of fear wrapped up in it. It's the story of Gideon. And maybe you're familiar with the story of Gideon. Maybe you're not. But it happens at a time in Israel's history where um, they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, which we uh, talked about in the fall of last year. And God brought them into the promised land, and they're in the promised land, and they're getting all the goodness and the blessing that God uh, has promised them, and they're enjoying good life. And then all of a sudden, they decide they don't need God. They're good enough without him. And so they start worshiping the gods of the nations around them. And uh, what happens is there's kind of a cycle of judges, if you read through the book, where basically um, they're, they're doing well, and then they choose to uh, rebel against God or worship another God from one of the other nations. And um, God says, okay, if you want your sin, here it is. They, they kind of turn their back on God. 
God uses somebody to oppress them, somebody to make their life difficult so that they turn back to him. They cry out. God brings a judge. The judge comes and delivers. There's a period of obedience, then silence, and then the cycle continues. It just kind of keeps happening, which really, ultimately, though it's a picture of Israel, is really a picture of us. That's a picture of what happens in our life so often. So uh, Gideon is one of those judges or rulers or deliverers that um, God chooses. So Judges chapter 6, I'm just going to read through um, much of 6. We're going to skip uh, kind of the second half of it. We'll read a bit of 7. But I would encourage you this week, grab your Bible uh, and read Judges 6 and 7 for yourself. There's some really good things in here that I don't have time uh, to cover today because you're going to want to eat lunch and not want to uh, have me read two chapters to you this morning. But Judges chapter 6 Verse 1 says this, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded their country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up um, they came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So um, this has gone on for seven years. Midian, God is using Midian to um, allow Israel to feel the full weight of their sin, right? The, he is basically saying, okay, you don't want me. You don't want my blessings. You don't think me, you need me. Okay, I will remove my blessings and you will feel what it is like to live a life without the favor of God. And they feel the full weight uh, their sin. And so Midian is basically just uh, destroying them. They're literally hiding in mountain clefts and caves, um, just terrified. Now, seven years of this goes on before they finally look up and go, what in the world? <laughs> right? So they're a little dense. It takes seven years of this for them to figure it out. But let's see what happens. Verse six, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. What I find interesting as I, as I read this is God um, allowed them to feel the full weight of their sin, but the moment they called out, he replied. The moment they said, God help, he said, okay, I, I've been waiting for you. And, and here they are living seven years in fear. And what would have happened if uh, six years ago they said, okay, God, help. How much difficulty did they bring on themselves because they didn't think God would deliver or they didn't think God would hear. But as soon as they cry out, God Responds And the prophet comes and he basically says, um, have you so quickly forgotten all that I have done? Did you forget that I delivered you from an oppressor that was way bigger? It was Egypt. Did you forget that I uh, parted the Red Sea so that you could be free? Did you forget that I provided for you in the wilderness? Do you think Midian is anything to me? They're, they're nothing to God. And yet it kept them captive and, and free, or kept them from freedom for seven years. I wonder in my life, how many things am I held captive to because I'm just not seeing God as bigger than those things. The angel continues to talk to him. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is 
with you, mighty warrior. There's a couple things in this um, that we need to see and not just breeze by, but um, I'm no farmer, no farming expert, but you don't typically uh, thresh wheat inside of a uh, wine press. A wine press would be a um, usually a closed-off uh, container of some sort where you would stomp grapes out and get wine out of it, which isn't very conducive for separating and taking care of um, the wheat. Uh, typically, that's done outside where the wind kind of helps that process along. And what we know from context is most likely that this um, wine press is also inside of a cave. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, okay, one, it's weird that you're not outside doing it, but it's understandable because you're afraid of the Midianites, right? So, so here's Gideon literally hiding in the cave, doing a job inside that's not meant to be inside, making his life incredibly hard because he's afraid of them. And yet in the middle of all of that, God says, mighty warrior, right? That's kind of weird. Like, yeah, you're a mighty warrior because you're hiding in a cave so nobody steals your Cheerios. Like, I... It just doesn't quite add up. But, but what the angel is saying to him through what he just said about the history and what he's saying to him now um, when he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, is one of, the, one of the kind of main tools you need to be able to fight back against the fear that pops up uh, in your mind. And it's this. We need to focus on who God is and who God says you are. Focus on who God is and who God says you are. Before he gets into the battle plan, before he gets into anything, he stops and says, have you forgotten who God is? It's tempting when we're in uh, conversations with people going through difficult times to kind of give some um, prophecy or you wouldn't call it prophecy, but some prediction for the future of "Ah, everything's going to be all right. It's going to work out, right? That's just kind of a cultural thing to say, but the truth is you don't know that. I don't know if things are going to get better. In fact, they may very well get worse. Uh, And so what the angel teaches us here is really something really important, that when we come to those moments, we don't predict what God will do. We instead reflect on what God has already done. I don't know what God is going to do, but I know what has been true of him in the past. Uh, This is kind of one of the ways I've I've said it in the past. I may not know what God is going to do next, but I know what he has done before, and I know who he has promised to be forever. Truth is, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen next in your life, but God does. He just hasn't revealed that to us yet. What he has revealed through his word and through the experience in our life is how faithful he has been. Even when circumstances seem so bleak, he never failed. And then we have um, just promises of his character that he's, he's never changing. He's unfailing. He's ever-present. He's with us. He promised to work all things together for good for those who love him. Right? There are undeniable promises of who God is. And if we could filter our fears through those, similar to what we said last week of putting a framework around the picture we see in life and saying, I know this fear seems ginormous and seems overwhelming, but it has to fit within the bounds of what is true and right of God. It gives me a grid to begin to tackle some of those fears. A.W. Tozer puts uh, this this way. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He's a theologian and author, but his point is this. Your life will be determined and the choices you make will be determined by what you think is true of God. If you do not think God is good and right and trustworthy, you will begin to make decisions with your finances. This says he is not and you are everything. If you do not trust him with your health, you will begin to live a life um, that is very different than one God would call us to because uh, maybe you don't think that God sees. 
Maybe you don't think that God cares because a past situation or a past circumstance made you feel like none of that was true of God's character. The way in which we parent, the way in which we uh, serve people around us is all determined by your theology. And you say, I don't have theology. You all have theology. Theology is what you understand to be of God. It just, not may, it just might not be correct theology, which is why the word of God is so important because it aligns us to think rightly about God that we may live rightly. And when we think rightly about God, it allows us to think rightly about ourselves. See, he called him mighty warrior. Now, why would he call him mighty warrior? Clearly, the evidence of his life is fearful and timid, but maybe it was because God was seeing him not as he was, but who he would be through him. He called him a mighty warrior after he promised to be with him. So if I believe it to be true that I have a God who is present with me at all times, it changes how I view myself. Because I'm no longer limited to my own strengths and my own abilities, I'm now set free because I have the God of the universe with me. There's not much I can accomplish with his power. You see how thinking rightly about ourselves is really affected by how we think about the Lord? And so, do you view yourself, and this is an opening question to think about, do you view yourself in the way that scriptures would, would declare that you are? Or does the fear of failure dominate what you think about yourself? Does the fear of rejection, and maybe even very real rejection, not just fear of it, but experience of it, determine what you believe about yourself? Or are you believing what the gospel declares over you, which you are loved, known, forgiven, worthy, and redeemed? Because it changes the type of choices we make. Let's keep reading as you're going to kind of watch um, Gideon process this himself. Verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord. And he doesn't mean Lord as in God. At this point, he's, he's meaning Lord as in Sir. He doesn't realize he's talking to um, what appears to be an angel, but what actually kind of turns out to be a God incarnate. We don't have time to, to get into that. If you want to know more about that, we can talk about that later. But he says, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. These couple verses are probably the most important verses in this section because it reveals what's going on in his heart. And if we're totally honest, it reveals what's going on in a lot of our hearts. This is the largest objection I hear to faith, and it's even the largest objection um, I hear to believers about their allegiance to Jesus is this question. If the Lord is with us, put that into modern terms, if your God is good, if Jesus is real, the next question, um, where are all his wonders? Did the Lord not bring us up out of Egypt? If your God is good and you say and claim everything that happened in the scriptures is true and you're claiming that God showed up in your life, how come then our present circumstances feel like God has abandoned us? Is that not the objections we hear to faith? Okay, sure, fine. You say God's good, you say it's true, you say it's about, but what about right now? If God is good, why is there evil in the world? Well, well, that question reveals one of our deepest fears, and it reveals Gideon's fear, and really all of Israel's, that God really had abandoned them. But here's the thing. God never abandoned them. They abandoned God. They were the ones who turned their back on God. And when, when they said, God help, God was there. See, it's not in his character to abandon his people, which is why what I said is so important, that we believe rightly about who God is. Because if we know he's a God who would never do that, it won't 
um, take root when the thought comes into our mind. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you second time, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. I love this this, um, interaction here because he says, um, you go in the strength that you have. Well, clearly that's not a whole lot of strength. He's still hiding with his Cheerios probably, all right? But he had enough strength to go. He didn't have enough strength to accomplish the whole thing. And that's not what God was asking him. And that's not what God is maybe even asking you. He's just asking, will you have the courage and faith enough to go and believe that I will be with you to see it through to the end? Do you see that promise? If you would go in your strength, I will be with you. And we will see this through together. How many fears in our life has God simply said, if you would just take step one, I'll handle step three, four, five, and six. Two, we'll see who handles that one, you or me, right? But, but, but we stop because we see steps five, six, seven, eight, and nine and go, there's no way. I'm not even taking step two. God's saying, all I've asked you to do is take that next step. And that's all he's asking of Gideon here. But he... Um, he has something he had to deal with. And I think this is something that as we talk about fear is incredibly important because he's about to go confront um, a nation and their idolatry. But before he could go do it out there, he had to do some work in his own life before um, he could confront it nationally. So jump down to verse 25 with me. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build the proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the, uh, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offering the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So God says, you had to deal with this idolatry. It was what caused them to turn their back on God in the first place. So he says, go, tear down this altar and sacrifice to the Lord, declaring that you no longer serve Baal. He is a false god. You serve God. But when did he do it? (laughs) Did it in the middle of the night because he was scared, right? So um, he's working up some courage, but he's not there yet. (laughs) He's still quite scared. He's literally hiding in here. And um, there's good reason. There's good reason, because what's going to happen is the townspeople are going to begin to investigate, and they're going to find out that um, Gideon did this, and they go to his dad and basically say, um, you, you better kill your son. Like, we want him. He's dead. So there is legitimate reason for him to be afraid, because obedience to God here meant sure death. Isn't that interesting? It meant sure death, and yet he still moved forward. We're going to skip down into uh, chapter 7. You can read this next section for yourself. Basically, um, he just begins to test God and say, all right, this is a big deal. You're asking me to do a lot, so um, here's a couple of tasks. Maybe you've done this in your life. You said, okay, God, this feels like a big ask. Maybe you want me to do it, but like, I won't do it unless you put a red cardinal on my windowsill at 7.45 a.m. this morning, right? Like, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you've done that. I wouldn't highly recommend it, but if that's what you need, um, sometimes God does that. And so he, he met Gideon in his doubt, which I think is incredibly important. So you can read that for yourself later. But God's kind of given him his battle plan. And um, 
what you'll find about fear and walking with the Lord in fear is um, God doesn't often take it away. He often walks you right through the middle of it, um, whether you like it or not. Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 20,000 men left while 10,000 remained. God wanted it to be incredibly clear that it wasn't Gideon that delivered him. It was God that delivered him. And what you need to see here is that if you choose to confront your fears, you will be standing in a much smaller crowd than you are currently standing. 20,000 left because they were unwilling to believe God and confront their fears. And so if we're evaluating our life based on the crowd around us and, and doing what they're doing, we will not confront our fears. We will not walk in full obedience. We will likely be standing with a much smaller crowd if we choose to obey God in the way that he has called us to obey him. Verse four, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap water with their tongues as a dog's lap from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cup hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest of them got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into their hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of Israel home, but he kept, excuse me, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now, if you've grew up, grown up in church, this sounds like just like a Sunday school story you've always heard, but think about it. He was terrified to go fight them with 22,000. For seven years, they stayed oppressed by them and wouldn't even go outside. They were so afraid of them. So now God's telling him to go fight him with 300 guys. He's not asking him to go across the street and talk to his neighbor. He's telling him, without God showing up, to walk into certain death, not discomfort, but death. If God doesn't show up, they're all dead. And so he's naturally discouraged, naturally fearful. And so God um, offers some encouragement to him by basically telling him to, to go down to the camp and listen into the conversation of the Midianites who they're about to attack. Verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. There, there's about seven divine interruptions, as I would call them, through the story of Gideon, and, and you can kind of track them for yourself. But at a couple points, he turns and has a moment of praise or offering or worship. But, but this is pivotal to the story shifting because he hears something that finally encourages him, like God had to use this weird dream and prophecy for him to finally believe all the things that God had already said but what does he do afterwards? He bows down and worships. See, worship does something to our fears, but I want you to see not only did it do something for him, what happened is he then goes back and begins to call other people out of their fear. It wasn't just that he grew courage. He then said, hey, the rest of you, get up. 
Because not only is it terrifying to do something by yourself, it's terrifying to call others into that place. And worship is really kind of the turning point for Gideon, and I believe it's the turning point for you and your battle against fear. See, worship uh, helps move us from the fear of man to faith in God. So many of the fears that we uh, live with, and, uh, and I'm just going to talk through some of my own, right? Like uh, so many of the fears that I have wrestled with over my life, the fear of uh, rejection, the fear of uh, abandonment, the fear of loss, like something about becoming a dad really sh- brought that one up in me. I don't know anybody who's had kids can relate to that one. Like it just feels different all of a sudden uh, than it ever felt before. Like I'll just be going about my day, loving my life, eating my Cheerios, and just this thought will pop up in my head. I'm like, what if he dies, right? Like I don't know where that came from. Like, I don't, why is that there, right? And so it's just there. And so what worship does, says, okay, I know what I feel. I know what this moment feels like, but I serve a God who's above that. I know rejection may be real. It may hurt. I know loss may be real. It will hurt more than anything. I, I know all of those things are true, but I also know I have a God who's promised me an eternity free of pain, sorrow, and suffering. I also know I have a God who's promised to lift me up out of the mire. I also know I have a God who's promised life and life abundant. And so even if I walk into, as you probably will have to, I'm sorry to say that, even if you walk into some of your deepest fears, worship says, okay, I know what I feel, but I know what is true. God, would you reorientate my heart? I am sure you've experienced this to be true. You're in the car, and you're just wrestling through stuff. You've got a bunch of worries and fears and anxieties rolling through your mind, and then that song comes on the radio, and you're just like, how did the DJ at FLN know that that's exactly the song I needed to hear right now, right? And it just it speaks, and it cuts through what sometimes words alone can't cut through. And so um, we actually have procured a list. You can throw this out there. We've procured a list of um, some worship songs that we think are going to be really helpful for you as you battle some of this. So if you have your phone, you go ahead and take your phone and your camera, and you can scan that QR code. Um, and it'll bring up that list for you. If not, I'm sure uh, it'll be out on our social media later, and you can find that. Um, but what, just listen to worship music. Nothing else. And for some of you, that'll be easy. You already do it. Um, just, just give it a shot. Um, there's something that happens in your mind when all you hear about is a tractor dying, and your dog dying, and your best friend leaving. Right? I'm not hating on country music, um, but there is a narrative that's being thrown around in your head. Now, there's some good country music. There's some country music that should be banned for all of eternity, um, not for anything it says, just the music that it is. All right, um, You know what kind of music I like now. Anyway, um, just, just try it for a week. See what it does to your thought process. See what it does to your fears. Would you begin to speak and sing the truth of God's words to the things that you're most afraid of? I want to kind of conclude with this. I want to talk to believers in the room uh, here for a minute, and then I'll talk to everybody. So if you're here and you you claim the name of Jesus, um, I just want to have an honest conversation with you, and um, I hope it comes out in love. It's one I've been waiting to have for probably two years. Um, The world is feeding us a narrative. You are being fed a narrative of fear. At every turn, um, you are being told to be afraid of uh, the people around you, to be afraid of your friends, to be afraid of your friends' kids, to be afraid to be hospitable, um, to be afraid of economic collapse. Why? Because when they, um, those in power, whoever they be, and nobody is free of this, this is all parties included, um, they control by fear because we listen when we're afraid. It's natural. They play into that. Um, So that narrative 
is incredibly damaging for us because it begins to feed in our soul and create a soil, really, for more fear to grow. And now I, I am not saying don't be wise. I'm not saying don't be smart. Take proper health precautions. Like, be wise with your money. I'm not saying be foolish. But what I am saying is that when Christians choose fear over faith, the world pays the price. When Christians choose fear over faith, the world pays the price. And here's what I mean. In the first century, right after Jesus called the followers to, his first followers to go and serve him, they lived in a world that hated them. They lived in a world that persecuted them. They lived in a world that really gave them lots of legitimate reasons to be afraid. And yet, they were the ones to serve the sick. They were the ones to serve the poor. They were the ones to serve the downcast. And they uprooted the Roman Empire because they went towards the danger, not away from it. They uprooted the Roman Empire because they preached the gospel in the face of certain death. Why? Because that's what they saw their Savior do. Because Jesus didn't look for self-preservation, but looked to live and give his life so that others may live. And that's our call as believers. Be smart. Be wise. Take your multivitamins. Do what you need to do, whatever it is. But we have to position ourselves in a world that is going to become increasingly unfavorable to the message of Jesus to choose faith over fear. That, that, that's been waiting for two years. I love you. I'm here with you. I just want us to be a courageous people because the world needs the gospel. And if it costs us greatly, it costs us greatly, but it does not cost us as much as what it will cost them if they don't hear it from us. To, to everybody else in the room, um, these last two years are not an accident. They weren't, they weren't a surprise by God. And in fact, I, I kind of wonder at times if it's not exactly what we needed um, to begin to reorientate our minds and thoughts. And here's what I mean. This is a quote out of the book um, that we're kind of stealing the series from. And here's what he says. Grass and weeds require the same soil to grow, dirt. In the same way, fear and faith require the same soil to grow, uncertainty. Without uncertainty, fear can't grow, but neither can faith. The same unknowns of the future related to your marriage, job, health, family, and finances provide just as much an opportunity to grow your faith as to grow your fear. What you grow in the long run depends on you. Could it be that these last two years have been given to us as a church and as believers as an opportunity to show the world that we have hope beyond this world? Could it be that God has allowed this uncertainty in your life as somebody who, who doesn't yet believe in Jesus to see that you need him? Could it be that the, the uncertainty is the exact place that our hearts need to sit so that we move not towards fear but towards faith? And if we could begin to see the trials and the difficulties and the things we're afraid of not as setbacks but as opportunities to exercise our faith, what would grow in our life? What would grow in our hearts? And I, I can tell you, as somebody who, who has battled through fear and, and counseled with many people battling through, battling through fear, you can win. You can leave those things behind you. Now, some of those may always be the nagging thought in your mind that you have to take captive, but there is freedom from it if we begin to take these moments as an opportunity to grow our faith. So, so here's my challenge for you as we, we go this week. I, um, I want to challenge you to do something you're afraid of. 
And I don't just mean go bungee jumping or go crawl on the vat of spiders, like whatever. You can go on Fear Factor if you want. But, but I want to challenge you to do something that you're afraid of for the Lord. Maybe it's to go pray with somebody that you've been really hesitant to pray with. Uh, maybe it's to share an invite uh, with somebody that you've been really um, scared to share the invite. Maybe it's to share the gospel uh, with somebody. Maybe you need to go have uh, a meal with somebody and have a conversation about some things. There's a lot of things that we can be afraid of, and, and the call really from scriptures is just do the next right thing. Don't worry about what's coming down there. Just do the next right thing and trust God for the rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for uh, meeting us in our fears and um, Sometimes those fears and the stories we write in our own mind can feel so real, God. Sometimes the fears we have are so real. They are legitimate fears. But God, we choose to position our hearts in worship of you and not in worship of our fears. Lord, I, I just want to say that we need you. We need you to live a life of courage. Um, it is so natural for me to um, look out for my own interests and look out for what's best for me and fear is so helpful at making me do that. But God, I want to be courageous. I want to honor you with my life and um, I don't have the strength to do it all and I, I need you to help me be the man that you've called me to be. And I pray that for every heart here. For those who don't know you yet, God, I pray that they would find the courage um, to move past their fears of what it looks like to surrender you and find a new life and life abundant. For those who have surrendered their life to you and made you their Lord and Savior, I pray for courage in their hearts today and this week and the days to come that they would be um, godly, that they would be bold, that they would be loving, that they would be forgiving, that the world might see that there's great hope beyond the fears that we feel at the moment. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.